This is the New Limestone Review podcast. New Limestone Review is a literary journal from the University of Kentucky's MFA Creative Writing Program. Here, we interview writers and talk about reading, writing, and more. Uh, This is Peter Williams and Zeke Perkins from the UK MFA program. And we're sitting here with novelist and short story writer Chanel Benz. Welcome, Chanel. Thanks for having me. Hey, go ahead, Zeke. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, it seems like from, you know, reading your work that that a lot of it's to deal with kind of reckoning with the past, Mm -hmm. um, like the historical past many times. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just... I guess we want to start off there and just see how you saw your work reckoning with the past. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that I'm, I am and I have always been interested in um, the, what people tend to call the counter-narratives as opposed to the master-narratives. Um, so the stories that have been sort of omitted or silenced or, um, or people that, you know, never sort of had a voice. And so that's something I think that um, part of the reason I like sort of historical research is I'm sort of rooting out, like, what are those stories that haven't been told yet? I'm kind of interested then in how you think fiction is a particularly effective tool or what fiction kind of brings to the conversation in terms of reckoning with the past and Mm -hmm. how it might be, you know, as opposed to, right, you know, a a researched academic uh, nonfiction book about this. Mm-hmm. these subjects? Well, I think that fiction tends to ring in sort of... I mean, this, the, the goal as a writer is to have authentic voices, right? Mm-hmm. And to sort of, like, populate this space and to make it feel palpable so it's not something that just stays on the page um, and it's not something that sort of stays in your head but you sort of feel like, oh, these people were living flesh. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the experience that maybe you can sometimes have in really amazing sort of interactive like museum spaces where you see something in a shaft of light and you can sort of imagine mm-hmm. yourself in that space. And I think fiction is trying to, right, have that vivid dream. And so I think in that sense you can sort of reach across the... Um, reach across the years but also sort of reach across like genealogy lines and I think that's why people are so interested or I think it's one of the reasons people are so interested in like ancestry and DNA right now is because it's sort of like though your people in your past sort of come alive but in a very sort of like modern way you're like oh I come from a lineage or especially for people who didn't have that you know who yeah. don't sort of have a sense before then of where they come from or um, know who their great-great-grandfather was um, and just little sort of tidbits of information suddenly that comes alive and I think it sort of like sort of fleshes out um, your sense of self like I, I used to be um, a, an actor so I'm a failed actress but um, when I went to drama school which was this kind of it was a sort of like a hippie sort of cult-like situation um, I had a voice teacher who was kind of like the big guru there and uh, she would say that, you know, the future is before you, the present is where you're standing, and your past is like a robe that just flows down and sort of holds you up and stands behind you. And I think that there's, for me, a sense when I find out things about my ancestors, like photographs or just little tidbits that makes them into complicated people, that I suddenly feel like, oh, I actually have all of this sort of standing behind me, and it feels... 
it feels rich. So I feel like for that sense, I never have a sense of like imposter syndrome or anything like that because it's suddenly like we all come from this sort of like um, storied past. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting because particularly with the man who shot out Maya's dead, it's so multivocal, right? You're moving across like eras and kind of sociocultural divides. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think you, you answered it to a degree, but you know, like, is, is that kind of how you approach it, thinking of like, well, I'm thinking of my own ancestors or, or something along those lines? I think I can see it in retrospect, but I don't think it was what I was thinking at the time. Yeah. You know, like something I talk to my students about and I try to do is sort of like looking for where the heat is, you know, when you're just kind of drafting and then you have this kind of like mess and then you're sort of like, where are the parts that I want to continue? You thought you were writing X story, mm-hmm. but actually you're writing Y. And I think, especially in a short story collection where you have stories kind of stacked, you can see what your obsessions are. Um, Before that book came out, I felt really naked because Mm -hmm. I was like, it is so obvious, like, what I'm obsessed with. And, you know, and I felt sort of nervous about that. But, of course, no one's as interested in you as you are. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that in, in retrospect, I can kind of see interested you know being interested in sort of um ancestry but i think when i wrote the book my idea was that i wanted to set an experiment for myself like what i had read uh david mitchell's cloud atlas Mm -hmm. and i was like what if i wrote a spy story what if i wrote and so i tried to give myself like a sense of form and a kind of challenge and then sort of write it and i think um I think somehow they they sort of come together because of my obsessions, you know what I mean? But there's something to me, and I know this isn't true necessarily for a lot of writers, in reading research or reading about history where my eye kind of goes to some of these like secondary or even tertiary characters okay. where I'm like, what about them? Mm-hmm. And that having like a little bit of information but not so much sort of allows me to create a world. But I'm not specifically thinking about like my great-grandmother something like that. Yeah. I th- um, I th- the, in terms of tertiary characters, I found my, I think my favorite character in the novel, in The Gone Dead, was the, um, the academic, right, <laughs> who comes to town and almost acts, and I, I was talking to Zeke yesterday, I was almost, it's like, it's almost like the dream of what academics wish they could be, right? Like you come to a community and you almost work like a detective and all this information and all this research you've had it be, all of a sudden becomes like essential to how the story Unfolds and is revealed, and um, in some ways, like gets figured out. Ju- you know, justice is done. Um, but I, I guess my question out of that becomes like, what do you think? I, I, this in terms of research and academ- and academia comes up in a lot of your work, even in terms of found documents, but also in terms of monks and scholars, academics. Um, yeah, what do you feel like the the import of including that in your fiction is? Which is fairly unusual at least to me, as a reader? Um, I mean, I think part of it is... <laughs> part of it is purely selfish, like, creating characters that allow me to talk about the nerdy obsessions that I have. Mm. You know, mm. like, deciding to make Billy's mother a medievalist. Yeah. Um, that's just... I listen to medieval podcasts and, like, medieval books um, when I'm, like, doing the dishes and <laughs> that right. kind of stuff. And, um but I felt like, at least with this book, that 
I wanted her to come from this kind of academic family, and part of that means that her life is infused with literature and storytelling, so she, you know, can have that. But also I felt like for the Mississippi Delta that it has a feudal relationship, right? In mm. the medieval era, um, and I'm really talking about, like, you know, England, France, um, people's the people that we would have been, you know, we read about kings and queens, but that was really like the 1%, 99% of us were um, the peasants. And that's what I found when I do my genealogy. It's just like, you know, farmer, haymaker, not even farmer, we didn't own anything. Um, <laughs> we had to poach, not to starve. And, uh, You're in the commons. Yeah. And, um, you know, as I look back, I sort of felt like, these are people whose bodies were tied to the land. Um, you know, if you look at serfdom, and even if you look at just the, the kind of um, lower class sort of peasant who, they weren't serfs, but they were kind of tied to the specific piece of land. And it's not really until, I'm getting really nerdy here, but it's not until the Black Death, when the population is decimated, that they start to move, be able to leave the land. Yeah because there's there's so little um, there's so much land that needs to be worked for the harvest and so people can actually pick and choose like they can say well I'm gonna go over here because um, I'll get paid a better wage right and there are sort of laws enacted but they just can't hold people like and people are being given land like please just take this and work this and they don't want to they want to go over here because it's better for them and so for the first time you have this migration and I think when I think about the Mississippi Delta again it's um, not as I mean, you know, definitely slavery, but even people who are sharecroppers or people who are um, tenants on mm -hmm. the large plantations, their bodies are tied to the land. And so I was just thinking about all of the different ways in which that is true. You know, it's true because um, you know, for the Delta, you if you were if you wanted to leave, a lot of times you would have debt, so you would have to leave on a train at midnight, tell nobody, and just disappear to Chicago, right? Mm. And don't come back. I think that's really interesting, this idea of leaving, you know, whether it's in medieval England or the Delta, the this place, and then, like in the novel, you know, the coming back home, or home coming back to you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stories, like Adela, you've got her lover comes back, and uh, the final, um, story we get um the kind of constable or something from the english mm -hmm. regime who he kind of gets to come up in some justice but there's something with like home people leaving home and then home coming back as like a form of justice mm -hmm. um yeah i think i mean i think that's interesting i think that that has to do with a kind of reckoning you know that that reckonings are really about having uh, like um, those uncomfortable clashes, you know, when something that you've been putting off, and we often put off things around family and home, like these uncomfortable conversations that part of us are sort of like, well, I could go my whole life never having this conversation, but there shall be no healing, there shall be no real yeah. reckoning without that conversation. And when I say that conversation, I think about like the number one thing you don't want to talk about you know, whatever that worst hurt is. Um, and so I think about that as like um, a violent confrontation, which can take, I mean, and obviously in The Man Who Shot My Eyes Dead, it usually takes like a physical form, but it's yeah. also like the violence of, you know, language. 
um, which a novel refers to. But to just go back, I think I didn't really answer your question about the academics. Like, so I think part of it is just like my own nerdery, wanting to include some of my obsessions and trying to figure out like, are my obsessions about reckoning somehow connected to these other obsessions? Um, but I also think, you know, for the novel, having um, Melvin, the academic in there, um, is about getting to have that outside eye who can put things in context, mm. you know? So part of it is just, like, um, a mechanical thing. Like, you don't want your protagonists being like, the reason I feel this way is because of the long history between, <laughs> right. you know, like, in the 1950s, after the Great <laughs> Migration. You know, so they can't say those things. Um, so someone has to carry the burden of information. And so you can have an outsider come in and do it. And the thing I usually talk about with my students is, like, um, uh, you guys have seen The Wire? Yes. Uh -huh. So the character Brother Mazzone. Yes. Um, so for people who don't know, Brother Mazzone is this assassin that um, the, the gang that we're sort of following hires to, I think, take a hit out on the other gang. A hit out on Prop Joe, I want to say. I could be wrong. It's on. Yeah. yeah. It's to take back the corners from Prop Joe. Yeah. So when it first gets introduced, it's like <laughs> Stringer and the sister who are leading that gang are talking and... She goes, well, you know who Avon asked for? Brother Mazone. And he just turns to her slowly and goes, Brother Mazone? And she's like, <laughs> Brother Mazone. And there's just like this long stare. And then you just get these almost like musical-esque sort of newsy type scenes where people are like, Brother Mazone, Brother Mazone. And it's just oh, yeah. like back and forth. Yeah. And then Brother Mazone finally enters and he's not what you think, right? He's got the... Um, you know, Islam bow tie. He's uh -huh. quite short and compact. He's very particular. He has like an assistant who brings in like Harpers, and he sits on a magazine. Uh -huh. uh, you know, flipping through this magazine. So one, you have somebody doing all the work of introducing that character, so the mythology. But then you also have like once he enters the scene, it's such a shock that you just you get like such a rich character mm -hmm. immediately. And so I think these outside characters can sort of provide do a lot of that work, which mm -hmm. feels natural. So if you make them an academic, then they're of course interested in the histo history yeah. of this place more than a character would authentically be talking about like yeah. and yet yeah that, and yet that kind of came off as authentic yeah I mean or it did like I was almost impressed with introducing this character I think who plays as such a mechanism so like mm -hmm. gives us all this information we, we've been wanting but then also this his motivation is so clear because you know and, he, and you, you write him that way too right he's this like um, very kind of self-interested, you know, looking towards his next, always looking towards his next book, always looking for, you know, when, when they come across this memoir, this is, this is like his big break. <laughs> this is kind of some kind of like real celebrity within his grasp. Yeah. Uh, or at least success. And I felt, yeah, it seemed, but it also felt, uh, I think so, just unfamiliar in terms of having a character like that who does function within, you know, kind of the structure of like a detective novel. Yeah, and I also felt like Billy needed a partner in crime. Like, she needed somebody with her, because I think when I was first writing the book for a while, it was like she was so alone, and it seemed like yeah. people were really against her. It's like she needs some kind of ally here. And so it's like he has his own motivations, mm. but he is, they are kind of on the same team, and he yeah. does want, you know, her to succeed. Um, and I also just felt like I wanted a different, a different type of black character to also be mm. on the stage. You know what I mean? Like somebody, because um, since 
the father is sort of there but not there. It's like, can somebody else represent like what it means yeah. to be a black scholar, what it means yeah. to be a black academic? And so I wanted a, that different kind of voice yeah. in there and somebody who's sort of like is obsessed and is this great observer, but at the same time, like slightly fetishizes what's mm-hmm. going on, you know? Um, yeah, it kind of seems like Billy, the, at first, it's like the only reason he cares about her is as a proxy for mm-hmm. Cliff. And then Dee and him, you know, have this kind of really, this old grudge between them that kind of has to be overtaken. Which I, yeah, that was another really interesting, kind of surprising choice where you see that, like you're, you're seeing the, the scholar, the black scholar implicated in small town, well, it's these small town relations that I think usually don't include that type of person. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get back to, there's a lot of threads we could take up. One of them is, you were talking about violence, and I mean, it seems like violence is like a big part of all your work. And I wanted to just ask kind of how you approach writing violence, physical mm-hmm. violence or, or otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think I've, I didn't realize until I had written a few of the short stories that there seemed to be this moment where, uh, the sort of climactic moment of the stories was a moment where the character, the protagonist, could choose to engage in violence or resist it somehow. Um, But either way, they were going to pass through this and kind of spin out in some direction. And then I decided that that would sort of be something that would happen in all the stories, that there would be this kind of, like, um, turning point that sort of um, centers around this violence and to think about all the different choices that someone can can make. And then part of it is, like, so sometimes people ask, like, why is there all this violence in your book or why is... Um, you know why are you why does that why is that something that's always present and I sort of I have a hard time answering it honestly because I feel like well I mean maybe it's easier to answer now than it was a few years ago but America is violent you know what I mean especially right now it just feels like the violence is bristling and um, you know between school shootings and just like the kind of racial spewing that's on the airwaves. It just feels like violence is something that could erupt so easily on any corner, anywhere, no matter who you are. Um, But I also think, like, I grew up in... I grew up in London, and I grew up in an environment where early on violence was um, something that occurred. And so I think I got very interested in how people carry violence you know when something or how we carry trauma when something happens to you um like where in you know and i think maybe this is also part of that kind of hippie thing of like having been an actor but like where do we carry it in the body where does it live in our muscle memory um how are we sort of reacting or even enacting like scenes from our past um and how does you know violence mark us especially something that may or may not even have happened to us, something that happened to our parents, something that we witnessed, you know, that's sort of like, I can almost imagine like violence passing into somebody's brain and the brain sort of like reconfiguring itself, you know what I mean? And that's kind of something that I felt about the scenes, like violence sort of veers toward this protagonist and how are they going to pass through this moment because there's no way around it. Mm. Um, And I think in terms of the gone dead, and somebody brought this up, and I think I wasn't even thinking about it, but somehow it made sense that in Hamlet, 
um, in Shakespeare's Hamlet, uh, the director Peter Brook, um, famous English director, who I think is still alive, um, he did a version of Hamlet that's very like short and uh, speedy, and it was like two hours long with change, and it was on like a stage that's just like pillows and um, people just kind of come in and come out. Um, and so the idea is sort of like the world is created and it sort of, you know, flows back and forth and it was really beautiful. But part of the, the thing that um, he talks about is that Hamlet has to make this decision, of course. Um, either he's going to avenge his father and, you know, um, stand up for his father's honor, or he is um, going to sort of let his father down and not take that. But in order to avenge his father and retrieve his father's honor, he has to do the one thing you can't undo, right? He has to murder his uncle. And that is the thing that also, like, imperils your soul. And I think it's sort of thought about, like, in order to get justice, some people feel like, well, you have to commit this act of violence, right? You have to kill the person and end their life. But then that is, especially if you're following in the Christian tradition, well, that's the thing that you're not supposed to do. Right? That's one of the commandments. And it's also a thing that once you do, you cannot undo it. And you can't even, in some ways, redeem it. Because the person isn't there. You know, in the Jewish tradition, they talk about, and the, this is really paraphrasing, but there's um, atonement, which I think uh, can only, only God can give you atonement. Um, I think it's not reparations, but it's sort of like repentance. Well, that's the works that you can do. So you have to like become the person who would never do that thing again, mm. and that's through works. And then there's forgiveness, which only the victim can give you. Mm. But if the victim's not there, then they can't give it to you, right? So it's that thing that like you cannot undo it. You can't go back in time. And I think that that's something I was thinking about with the gone dead in terms of violence. But to go even more specifically to your question, like how do I write it? You know, maybe it is too pretty or maybe it is stylized and I think people could fault me on that, but I think that when violence happens that strange things happen in time and in your brain and sort of like where you go, mm -hmm. um, it's so unpredictable and it's so surprising. Yeah. That's definitely true of like the diplomat's daughter, like the sort of violence and that is so like jarring. Mm -hmm. And so, like, all over the place. Like, just the way that the whole narrative's formatted. Or... But I was thinking, really, when you first started talking about West of the Known and the way that um, we get this protagonist who's... Like, when you're talking about the way that children or you know, kind of face violence is passing th in front of them or through them, she's, like, just kind of like a path, like just a vessel for violence just like mm -hmm. happening around her and is kind of just is constantly navigating it. Yeah, um, when I was working on this story, I was working on it a little bit with one of my teachers, George Saunders, and he said something to me about like she's, and I wasn't really thinking of it this way, but he said, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire. And so it's sort of like, yeah, she just goes from one bad situation to the next. And he was always talking about like painting your character into a corner. Um, and so... I, I liked thinking about that, and I also like thinking about characters who don't get out of it, because I think that's something else that I noticed in history, like when you read these stories, it's not like, and they escaped X way, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, those are the, those are usually the stories of the person who made it out who got to write about it, you know, but there are all these tales of people who like, they didn't, they lived <laughs> that kind of short, brutal life, yeah. but it couldn't just have been short and brutal, so what is that complexity there?
Yeah, I'm, well, on that note, I'm also curious about the, the form that the Gone Dead takes. And I found that the, so like the traditional detective novel, you know, right? We, we end with this realization and it doesn't give us a lot of opportunity for this, for this resolution, falling action, or even like further conflict to kind of deal with that. And that, that moment for Billy, I think it feels so short. Um, and I, and yet she's, she's confronted with like the ultimate moral question of, is it, is it revenge or is it, or do you understand maybe something larger, something more systemic? And I wonder how you, how you feel the form served that kind of, of this novel served that purpose of, or that idea of dealing with an injustice and facing the facts when the, the form itself is, you know, so there's so much suspense and it's so thrilling that we're kind of waiting for the reveal, but that a lot of the time or not for Billy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't think about that I was writing anything suspenseful. I just felt like I needed to make the novel work mm -hmm. <laughs> and I needed to keep yeah. people turning pages. And so I felt like, well, each section has to either ask a new question, answer a question, or somehow complicate something that's being asked. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, I think that may be why it has the pace it does. And when I was trying to decide, like, what perspective to write it through, I really struggled with Billy's voice. And I went through like first person, third person, past tense, present tense, you know, back and forth. Um, and I had it like originally just different. Um, and then I suddenly realized that the only character that was really working was Uncle D. Like he just felt like he just yeah. kind of arrived on stage. And so I felt like, okay, there's something here. And I felt like that it wasn't just Billy's story, but it's the story of a community. You know, it's a communal voice, it's the story of a town, and that she's just never going to know everything. Um, there's just things that she can't know because she's an outsider, but there's also things that she can't know because that person, even if they wanted to, couldn't tell her. You know, um, like I wrote the scene with Mr. McGee where he's sort of thinking about her, and the opening is just him thinking about his relationship with her father, Cliff, mm -hmm. but it's kind of in this way that he couldn't even tell himself that. You know what I mean? It's sort of like his, he couldn't even put into words what his relationship with Cliff is. Like, he would just probably say they were close, right? And so I thought about, like, the different kinds of energetic truth that can't be expressed. And so when I finally realized it was a communal novel and I thought, okay, who needs to speak, I felt like... You know, the book, um, the novel As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, Addie, the mother, she's kind of like the hub of a wheel, and everybody else's voice are sort of like a spoke, mm. and they're centered around her death. So I felt like, okay, if the center is Cliff and his death, who are those spokes on that wheel that need mm. to speak, that have, like, as a sum total, you have the truth, but in any other combination, you can't have access to it all. And so as far as, like, Justice, when I was doing research and looking at civil rights era cold cases and looking at the very few that have been um, explored or litigated or pursued, um, justice isn't about, um, isn't, has never been immediate, has never been um, totally satisfactory. Um, has always been come up short or sort of like um, 
you know, everybody got acquitted early and that was just the end and now we have these lingering truths or nobody came up on any kind of charges and then years later that person happened, one of the people happened to be alive and maybe there can be some kind of, they can go to jail for a couple years before they die, you know what I mean? But when I did research, it's like there's not a lot of appetite to bring that justice and the wheels of justice and bureaucracy turn slowly. So I felt like, what can justice look like if it doesn't look like, you know, the gavel wrapping and the person going away in handcuffs, you know? And I also didn't want to write like a procedural or anything like that, and so I didn't want to go into the courthouse. Um, but I felt like, when you're looking for justice and you can't have it, like, what does that look like? Like, what else would you like? And one thing that really bothered me as I was researching is like I started looking at okay here's a list of civil rights era cold cases in Mississippi all these men and women and sometimes children have been murdered um, because of racial hatred and you can see in some of the FBI files like some names you know of people that are supposed to be involved and quite often there are people in law enforcement at the time and so I sort of took one of those names a name of a couple sheriffs and started um trying to figure out, like, well, what happened to them after? And usually, um, say the person was killed in 1965. Well, in 1968 and 1971, they're still the sheriff. And, you know, I found an obituary of a guy who was a sheriff who had been involved in more than one murder in some way. And um, he died in 2000. And his obituary, I mean, not that it's going to, like, trash him, but his obituary is, like... You know, he was this great um, public servant. He was the county clerk. And it just lists, like, all the positions of power that he's had in the county and, like, his grandchildren and how beloved he is. And so it's like not only did this person get to stay a sheriff, but they got to go on to these other positions of power. And they got to have a legacy that was sort of like you were this great public servant, this kind grandfather. Um, and that their family got to, like, live this life where they can talk about that person, whereas the families of the victims... They're just left with this um, this injustice, this hole, but also people telling them, like, it's in the past, just let it go. Mm. And they're still usually living in some kind of fractured way, often in poverty. And so it's sort of like they're not allowed to trace back to their grandfather and say, like, you know, I have this great story and family. They're told, like, don't even think about it. You know, don't even think about what happened. Because for you, that's way in the past. For us, it's this, like, legacy that is somehow, like, raises our status. And I even watched this little video of this man whose father had been killed, and he murdered, and he was the one who found him. And he was just saying, like, you know, something like I think Billy says, something along the lines of, but it's my past. You know what I mean? Like, this happened to me. Um, and so I was sort of thinking about that in terms of her, like, how, how does she see, like, what would justice look like? Well, it's not going to come in the received way. Um, it's going to be, uh, to me, it's going to be like, what I want, because all these people are dead in terms of civil rights or cold cases, is I want the stories to be out there. I don't want these stories to be buried in these people's names. And I want people to know that it was their grandfather that did this. You know what I mean? Like, I want that name to live on in infamy. I don't want this name to be, like, emblazoned everywhere and on the courthouse and the parks named after them. You know what I mean? Like, then it has to be in narrative if it can't be physical. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think of... Like, because uh, I think you're you're pointing out this thing. It's like 
you know, if you think of like sexual trauma in families, the way that that repression mm -hmm. is so common, and the way that if you just deny and kind of gaslight victims, the the way that that is generationally sort of passed down, and it really can just ruin stuff, you know, for forever. And, yeah. yeah, and I think we're finding out a lot. I mean, I think the conversation about generational trauma has become more vibrant um, and less kind of woo-woo, you know? Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, there are things like epigenetics where they're looking at um, how different, um, how your genetics change um, down through generations. So I think it's like, this is a really paraphrasing example, but um, people three generations from the Holocaust, um, Jewish people, they're, they're the way they make cortisol is affected. So that's, you know, mm -hmm. regulating your stress. And so even though you didn't experience it and you're the grandchild, it's still passed on to you genetically. And so we're finding that, like, yeah, actually, yes, it's in the past, but yeah. actually, like, physically, genetically, it does matter. Yeah. And so, you know, we can just think about that in terms of, like, you know, if someone does experience sexual violence and they never tell their child about it, but they sort of go through life that still somehow the child can sort of sense, I don't know, this person needs to be protected or you know what I mean like there's still these things that are past um, still these um, tensions that I think are like narrating what's unspoken I guess in that kind of to turn a corner um, you, you already spoke a little bit about voices in terms of having all the voices of the, the, the town of Greendale and their novel The Gone Dead kind of would kind of hop from perspective to perspective but also, I mean, among your short stories and, and, and this novel, I think you, you span several centuries in terms of the voices and continents and uh, <laughs> class structures and uh, races and genders. And I feel like we, we're, it's kind of, it's one of the widest breadths of uh, inhabiting voices. And I wonder how you, how you approach writing that kind of diverse of a group of people and how you find the process as you're writing them. Uh, I mean, I think. I mean, I think one thing is that when I was in grad school, um, I was kind of figuring out like, okay, what do I do well? And I and I pretty not immediately. That would be a lie. Um, eventually, I it seemed that I do voice as well. And then I started to think about like, okay, that's one hand. Like, what is the other thing? Like, there's sort of there's something. There's got to be two things that I can do. Um, and I eventually realized that it was form. That if I can key into the voice and I can find some kind of structure or just rule or something, even if I kind of like end up moving past it, um, that then I have a story, that then I can do it. And I think that happened with the novel too. Like it took me a long time to key into the voice, but once I figured out a form that kind of made, you know, logical sense for me in terms of story narrative, that's when the thing came alive. And so, you know, a lot of times I'll just kind of have this world or this kind of I was at this um, on this panel and somebody brought up the idea we we're talking about place and they brought up the idea of it's not just place it's a site s-i-t-e so it's a, the place where something happened or happens mm -hmm. and so I felt like yeah once I come up with the site mm -hmm. that I want to explore um, then you know something kind of comes to light so for me it's just like when I was working on the book of short stories it was like different scenarios, you know, that were kind of coming up, like, what if there was a person who this, you know, or what would it have been like to this? 
Um, and then there was this kind of site, and then I sort of, and usually it's something like I've read about or seen or been thinking about, and then I start to do a little bit of research, and I try to give myself kind of like a springboard, you know, enough to kind of feel confident. Um, and the further back you go, the more license you can take. Um, and so I, you know, with that book, I often would come up with um, like a key of like language and words and phrases that kind of, um, and I think as I grew as a writer, I was able to not have to be so like, didactic with that, but a key that kind of gave me um, like the texture of the world, you know what I mean? Like what the language sort of reveals about that and then different, um, like different parts of the world or the place that kind of gave me a sense of what it would be like to inhabit that. Um, and then, so that's how I sort of created each voice. And I, you know, as I knew it was going to be a collection, I wanted to make sure that it was varied and then it had like a range of perspectives. And I think some of them are more successful than others. Yeah. Um, but I felt like it was an important experiment for me to try. Um, and I just wanted to do things that I hadn't done yet. Yeah. That we may all be one sheepfold. This story is, I, I was just like, this was like, how did, how did she come to... It was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> it starts, Downstairs do the floorboards creak, the servant boy bestirred from dream, the world that wast is, is a pernicious noble dream. <laughs> I couldn't even yeah, start to write that story. <laughs> That's the furthest I had gone back. And I just had had this, like, secretly, I've always wanted to be, like, a, a medieval monk. And so, you know, just the... I don't think I would actually, I think it would have driven me crazy, but the idea of just like pouring over books, you know what I mean, and just living this kind of like, your whole, your whole existence is around this trying to get closer to the universe or higher power or God or whatever, um, and then write books, you know, read books. There's something um, that's appealing to me in a kind of capital R romantic sense, but probably not at all in reality. Um, but I got, so I got really interested in that and I started to think about, um, I was like listening or reading something about the dissolution of the monasteries. And so this idea that you had these people that some of them were raised since they were children in this very specific rarefied space that were like literally just like turned out onto the streets and like, what do you do? How do you um, function? Uh, and it just, the whole, the whole process of the dissolution seems really cruel. But um, so when I was, you know, going back, I thought like, uh, you know, when I have to write certain books, because I was an actor, I'm pretty well versed in like Shakespeare and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But this is before that. And so the language before that and trying to find a key, I was really struggling because it's like, how do you do enough? I've never picked something so specific like that. That I think I would be wary of picking again when you mm -hmm. pick the dissolution of the monasteries, which is an exact date, not just like monkhood in yeah. the 1500s, you know? Yeah, so when you yeah. pick something specific, I had to do so much research to kind of, I just didn't want to mess up enough to distract anybody who might know anything about it. Yeah. Um, I didn't need to get it like perfectly, but um, so I had to do so much research to like get that historical moment and you know, it's 1542 and like, oh, I you know, messed up this part. And then trying to get the language, what I ended up doing is reading a lot of, um, trying to find somebody's voice. Mm -hmm. And I started reading a lot of um, Thomas More's letters mm. to his daughter. Okay. Um, and they're kind of staged letters, like he obviously meant them to be read, but they're really beautiful. I mean, he's um, writing from the Tower of London. He's going to be killed and he knows it. And mm. she's his favorite child. Mm. 
-hmm. And so he's writing her these letters. And those letters really reach across the centuries. Like, they're very moving and they're very understandable. Mm -hmm. The language, you know, all there really is is there's a lot of, like, those reversals. There's some flipping reversals, certain words. And so I just kept, like, reading those over and over again and picking certain phrases and language and trying to, like, make some of them my own. And I also just thought a lot about the the protagonist's predicament, which is um, this kind of yearning back to a time in your youth when you were innocent. Mm -hmm. And it's not even like like wanting to be innocent as much as it is like wanting for life to be simple again. Yeah. Um, And wanting to just be loved and just Mm -hmm. know that and, and, you know, not sort of be in search for it, that it just was and it had always been. and then having this thing that you know you have done, which you don't know if you can undo, that there's a lot of, like, I mean, hopefully I write that moment in terms of you don't know if it was the right person or not. Mm, yeah. um, so you don't even know if what you did is the right thing. You know it's wrong, but even if it was, you know, it might be more wrong than you think. Yeah. Um, and so, like, just the idea of having committed an act for which you cannot be forgiven, for which you don't even quite know how it happened. And I think that's true also of, now I think about it, Accidental, the story of the woman who's um, hit somebody with her car. Yeah. Right? It's sort of like this thing that you did that you didn't even quite mean to do, that sort of overtook you. This thing that happened to you in life sort of overtook you that has now shaped your life that you can't undo. Like, how do you reconcile with that? Um, So that was something that I also, like... You don't want to get so bogged down in creating a voice that it just becomes this sort of like stagey thing. Like somehow that that desire, that sort of the question that the protagonist is asking has to sort of drive the voice. But once I started to feel the emotion of Thomas Moore's, mm-hmm. then I started to plug into his emotion as well mm-hmm. and try to sort of like make sure the language was doing that. And the thing is, like, you can just write a really bad version of that, and you can always go back and tinker with the sentences in the language. It's like, but you have to get that. Um, Like, even when I talk about, like, getting the voice, it's sort of like getting the voice is about getting the perspective. And the perspective is built out of desire. The perspective is built out of the longing and a question that is driving the story. And so even when I try to teach about voice, it's not so much about, like, constructing it as it is because I think technically you can do that that's something craft wise you can learn how to do but it's about like can you make that perspective the I E-Y-E of that voice come to life yeah it's hard it's hard (laughs) it is hard but then sometimes you do it accidentally you know and so you're like okay let me focus on that character who just like magically came to life and like I can use them as a way to kind of you can you can deconstruct that and see what you did right accidentally and then like replicate it I mean not every time it doesn't work all the time you know obviously there are failed stories I had like a apocalyptic robot child story that is not in there. <laughs> like a rough my, my editor was like, um, so I'm still having problems with like the world and something else huge. Like, <laughs> and she's like, can you fix this? And I was like, no. <laughs> I can't. I've done everything I could think of and it's just not. This is yeah. just, and I just think of those stories as like, it's a prototype. Like eventually you'll get it. It's just like yeah. the thing that's not there yet. I like the idea of the key that you brought up. I, I mean, I'm, I've not really done that 
until very recently, started to think. I've I been writing this story, and I, I looked up. I don't know if you ever read uh, Brees Pancake story. He's an Appalachian writer. But he has a story, Trilobites. And I was like trying to write this story from like the perspective of a 19-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I just kept writing, and it was like a 28-year-old thinking, talking about being 19. Mm -hmm. And he's got this story, and I just read it. And then I read Nilda, mm -hmm. and just read both of them over again. I was like, okay, this is... These are the, this is kind of the key, you know? And I think that that's like a really interesting, smart way to approach it. Obviously yours is a lot harder because you're <laughs> doing some of these characters who are com from completely different eras. But, but sometimes I think that there's so, like, writing The Gone Dead, which is dealing, starting in 2003, I actually found a lot harder okay. than, than writing those stories. Interesting. Part of it was because just having to write longer, you know, having to write a novel, having to write something that, you know, there's something really satisfyingly mechanical to me, and I mean mechanical in the most positive sense about writing a short story. Like, I sort of feel, I now that I've written for a while, and now that I've written a lot of short stories, I sort of feel when things snap into place, you know what I mean? When the, the story logic snaps into place. With a novel, I didn't have that same sort of click, um, because it's just not... It doesn't move in that same way. It's not as compact. Um, it doesn't have that kind of mechanical feeling. It could. It's just baggier, you know. And um, there's more than one kind of like motion of the story, right? So there's other secondary plots and you know other kind of. Yeah. So it just can't have that same kind of. Um, I don't know. Sort of. But the only thing I can think of is like mechanic, mechanical feeling. Um, and so I've, I found it harder in that sense, but also just writing more contemporary, like dealing with um, racial violence in the Delta with, and knowing that those people who have been through that are still alive, or a lot of them are still alive. So that kind of um, pressure yeah. to like not like tell it right, you know yeah, what I mean? Totally like I, it really kind of bogged me down in the beginning. And now that I've gone through it, I would go about that differently and probably have written the book a lot faster um, but when it's so far away in history it's sort of like I can, can I curse on you? Yes. I can do whatever the fuck I want you know what I mean? Like no one knows what yeah. happened especially not amongst the poor you know yeah, what I mean? Totally. So it's kind of like you don't really know that they were or were not like this or they thought or did not think this and so I feel like there's more kind of poetic license to sort of play with it um, and so and especially when something is I find writing very far away from me really freeing. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, it took me a long time to know that. It wasn't until I was in grad school. I was still working on this novel that was failed and um, was much closer to me. And I just realized, like, oh, it's much more freeing for me to write very far from myself. Because it's kind of like, you know, a Zen era, like you shoot out and it sort of loops back and just hits you because it still has your obsessions and like emotional, you know, obsessions in there. But, um, Yes, yeah, so for that reason, writing someone who is, um, you know, has a white mother and a black father like I do, um, who's closer to me in age, who's closer to me in time, like, I was like, I don't want this person to be me. I mean, they're not me in obvious ways, but they are somebody who, you know, I was alive in 2003. Like, I have a sense of what that was like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, um, it was a struggle for me to do that. Yeah. Do you have anything else, Peter? Uh, no, I think we pretty much covered it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was thanks really great. for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the New Limestone Review Podcast. Formerly, I wanted to also ask about ghosts. Special thanks to the University of Kentucky's Department of English, our MFA faculty, the Visiting Writer Series, and each of our contributors. New Limestone Review publishes monthly online issues and one yearly print issue. You can find more information about submitting and our guidelines on our website at newlimestonereview.as.uky.edu.